Keto Fest. It's two keto dudes. Wow. I haven't I haven't seen <laughs> I haven't seen this many people since the Trump inauguration. Hey, welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut, and I went keto in 2016 to reverse diabetes and lose weight. And it's my mission to spread the science of keto and to show the world how cooking is necessary for keto success. Oh yeah, lamb chops. I love lamb chops. Lamb chops. Hello, I'm Carrie Brown, and I also live in Connecticut, just a different part to this guy. I'm a trained pastry chef who went keto to control and eventually eliminate symptoms from bipolar 2 disorder and depression. I take no medications, I have no symptoms, and it's my mission to show the world that keto food is not only delicious, but it can be better than any other kind of food. And wait a minute, there's a third keto dude here. Oh, I'm... <laughs> Hello, everybody. <laughs> and, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm Richard Morris, I'm from Canberra, Australia. I went ketogenic in 2014. Uh, I lost uh, 100 pounds. Um, I put another 15 pounds back on again recently, but um, I'm, I've reached a happy homeostasis where I'm no longer diabetic, and I'm a full-time university student. Yeah. Well, this show is a document of our experiences thriving for years in nutritional ketosis. And also our experiences reversing diabetes and depression and feeling better than we ever have before. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary <laughs> hacking. Now, we are not doctors, so we don't give any medical advice. Right, we just want to share our experiences and share and review the research that supports it. Oh, and keto ravioli. Yeah, that's the thing I hear. Keto ravioli, we share our recipes and any science we find in the show notes. And my favorite part is the recipes. So let's start podcast number 178, Keto Fest with Dr. Stephen Finney. Before we get started, let's explain in plain English what a ketogenic diet is. Sure, that's any diet that puts you in a state of ketosis where you're burning fat for energy rather than glucose. And the way we did it was to limit our carbohydrates to 20 grams or less every day, enjoy a moderate amount of protein, 1 to 1.5 grams per kilogram of lean body mass, and all our energy comes from fat, 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 fat. Fat? Fat. That's right. Uh, and if you're just starting, listen to our Starting Keto show at start.2keto.com or just start listening from episode one. Well, Carrie, what's, what have you been doing lately? This week, it's been all Keto Fest prep all the time. Yes. There's been um, 24 batches of keto ice cream right. made by six churners over several days and a lot of of noise. So yeah. there was that, and then there was all the samples for the recipes that are demoed today, mm -hmm. and uh, the first kitchen disaster I've had since I was 11, so that was super fun. If you were in my demo this morning, you will know that my mousse split, and so I turned that into a teaching moment. It was really cool. 
and explained the science behind the split and then magically made it unsplit itself. So hopefully that ended up being a bigger learning experience than had it gone right in the first place. So great. disasters can be fun. So my week has mostly been um, getting ready for all you lovely people for whom we are incredibly grateful that you're here. And, 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 and of course, for those of you who are regular listeners, there was a large spattering of Priscilla. Yes, that's right. Can't, you can't beat uh, Facebook cat pictures, can you? <laughs> no. Um, so just we're going to just, I could spend 20 minutes on what I've been doing because I've been doing a lot. But uh, I just want to say that uh, it's been great being here at Keto Fest. The VAP party went off without a hitch. I made eight pans of lasagna and everybody liked it. And yeah, so apparently bazoodles have gone mainstream, and that's very cool. So that's all I'm going to say. We'll talk more about Keto Fest later. We have a lot to talk about here today, but before we do that, we're going to give away a two Keto Dudes coffee mug to a lucky member of the audience. Who's got a birthday today? Anybody have a birthday today? You have a birthday today, sir? Stand up. What's your name? Tom Paxson, you, you just won a Two Keto Dudes coffee mug. Yay! That's it. I guess we can get started with uh, that other segment that we call, uh, what do we call it? Oh, the letter. Yes, the letter. You guys want to say it? Okay, who's sending you mail today? <laughs> yeah, this was actually from the forum, and uh, this is a pretty cool um, post. Who else is tired of trying to explain what you are doing with keto? People ask how I've lost so much weight, but when I try to explain it, I find they stop listening as soon as I mention low carb, high fat. It's at that point that I start getting the, I just couldn't give up carbs, too hard on the kidneys, what about vitamins, you have to eat fruit, you're going to have a heart attack, blah, blah, blah. If I were to sit down at breakfast and drink a carton of chocolate milk with two donuts, no one would bat an eye. I've decided to stop trying to explain anything. Now my answer is, go do your own research or not. So that's, uh, that's all I got to say about that. And we've been saying the same thing forever. I mean, people, you know, put a little butter on your steak and everybody loses their mind. Yep. Yeah. Um, this show is really important to me uh, because Stephen Finney is probably the reason why you are sitting here today. His work influenced Richard and Richard influenced me, and we influenced you, and you're here. So there it is, full circle. Do you want to tell a little story about that? Sure. I, I, when I uh, was uh, first looked into ketogenic diets, I, got a, I, I saw a, a YouTube by Tim Noakes who was talking about his own type 2 diabetes, and he is a well-respected researcher uh, in sports um, uh, medicine uh, from South Africa. And at the time, I was about to lose my toe. I had uh, uh, peripheral neuropathy. I'd been type 2 diabetic for, uh, from the age of 38, which is very early um, in the progression of this disease. And my doctor told me, he looked me in the eye and he said, if you can't 
um, manage your glucose, and I don't think you can, then you may lose that toe. It was, a, it was a, an ingrown toenail that just wouldn't heal. And so uh, I, I saw this video, and, and Tim Noakes is talking about this being a, a, a diet for, to treat diabetes. And, and I'd seen some, some studies from Roy Taylor in England who'd managed to reverse diabetes using a low-calorie diet. And I thought, well, you know, it, it, everyone's telling me it's progressive except these guys. And so I looked into, I, I followed Tim Noakes for a while, and he uh, led me to the book uh, Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living uh, by Dr. Stephen Finney and, and uh, Jeff Volek. And I just devoured that book. And as you put, probably all know, I'm a computer programmer. For, uh, that's, that's, that's what I did for, for 35 plus years. And it was reading that book that convinced me I needed to understand more about the biochemistry of my own, of my own disease. And uh, that was what gave me the confidence to try a ketogenic diet. I said to my doctor, give me a chance, give me three months, let me see what I can do if I really lean forward into diet and exercise and, and all these things that I think might make a difference. And my HbA1c went from 10.2 to 5.5 and then to 5.2, and it's been 5.2 for five and a half years. So I'm effectively non-diabetic. Thank you. And, and, and then, of course, what happened was uh, I was I was on Facebook. I was talking about how you know this this it it may not make sense to you, but it worked for me and it reversed my diabetes. And Carl had just had a diagnosis, and and Carl's been a podcaster for for many years. He's he's he Carl started podcasting two years before the term podcast ever existed. So um, and and so we decided. Carl said, "I want to try this because I'm diabetic. I've just been given a diagnosis and." Um, but I'm not sure that I'm going to stick to it. I said, well, you know, oh, actually it was his idea to come up with it, to do the podcast in the first place as a commitment device, sort of, if he puts his professional credibility on the line to do podcasts. Uh, and I committed to 10 podcasts. Yeah, I mean, it uh, could have been bad for your reputation it, too, Well, right? I, I, I don't care about that. Yeah. I, I have 10 toes, so I don't <laughs> care about my <laughs> reputation. But uh, yeah. so, and that, that's how the podcast happened. It was a commitment device to stick Carl to the diet. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's had remarkable effects. I so. remember the first time I got my numbers back after, you know, the first blood test after going keto, you were so nervous. You were like, oh my God, what happens if it got What if I kill the guy? What, <laughs> what if I kill I my friend? My friend? <laughs> you know, and, uh, but, you know, sure enough, it, it's worked for Carl. It's worked for hundreds of thousands of our listeners. It's worked for, you know, tens of thousands of people on the ketogenic forum. We know large groups on Facebook that have got, you know, over a million uh, subscribers who are all on ketogenic diets. And uh, so, and it was really that book that made the difference for us. So, so, uh, so there's so many things we want to talk to you about, Professor Finney, that I don't even feel like I should just suggest a topic because I'm not qualified, nor am I worthy. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're not uh, worthy. <laughs> uh, you know, if you want to ask him a question or you would like to just open the floor and tell us what's on your mind these days, you could do that. What are you thinking about? That's a dangerous thing to offer. It is. But I, I'm really intrigued by what Kerry mentioned, because it sounds like there's something I never heard of called ruminant mitosis. Otherwise, I've never heard of a moose split. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I learn something new every day. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> there's been some recent uh, research that you've been involved in. 
Um, you've got a two-year study finally from uh, out, coming out of Verda. Uh, and the great thing about that is that's a long-term study. Now we have a long-term nutritional study into reversing diabetes with nutritional um, uh, treatment. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about, the, about how that came about? Well, when uh, I was approached by um, an uh, internet entrepreneur, a very successful inter internet entrepreneur named Sami Inganen, who, besides being an internet entrepreneur, like Carl, he has many other remarkable skills. By the way, the guitar today oh, was remarkable. It reminded me of Jerry Garcia, so I wore wow. my Grateful Dead t-shirt here to celebrate. Oh, wow, cool. Celebrate. I'm anyway. honored. Thank you. Um, so uh, Sami Inkin, in addition to being uh, a Finnish trained nuclear engineer and a world champion uh, amateur triathlete, while he was competing in triathletes, was diagnosed with prediabetes because he was consuming about 60 to 65% of his calories as carbohydrate, and much of that from instant oatmeal, because he said it was the most convenient food he could get. Mm, sure. Um, and so uh, he approached us and said, you know, you guys are trying to do this in an in-person basis, and you know, you win a battle, you know, it'll be a business success, but you lose the war because the United States will create 10 times as many people with diabetes as you guys managed to affect in a 10-year period. Let's put it into an app, and that's really where Verta started. And, and we said, we've got this program, we've put it together, we have experience in running patient, uh, you know, clinical studies. We have been working with patients in, in small groups, but we've never done something long term. And everybody is concerned, you know, not only the skeptics, but the people out here would like to see this go forward, that there wasn't any clear data that you could get people to follow a ketogenic diet for more than a few months. Yeah. And at Bob Atkins, bless his soul, you know, got people to do this and got remarkable short-term results, but the, the people that, that were able to leverage his information into long-term success was um, somewhat limited. And I think there were a number of factors of why that was, was true, and we wanted to put this into a unified package. And so when Sami was saying, well, you know, what are we, how are we going to start this company? You know, how are we going to build this app? And I said, the, the first thing we need to do is we need to do a study that proves that providing this information through the app will have a lasting effect. Right. And we searched around for a while to find a place to do that uh, because none of us had a, our own clinical practice. I'm licensed to practice in California, but I, I gave up the actual practice a, a couple decades ago. And we were, I was approached at a meeting by someone named Dr. Sarah Hallberg from Lafayette, Indiana. And Sarah, in her usual subtle way, walked <laughs> up to me and said, Steve Finney, we've never met, but you've got to help me with this problem because I've got patients on your diet, and they're doing great, but some of them, their cholesterol is going through the roof and it's scaring the heck out of my referring physicians. We've got to see if that's safe. Okay. Yeah. That's a very good impersonation of Sarah Halbert. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't quite have the false other voice. To do, but in response, I said, would you like to do a study? And she said, heck yeah. So I called up Sami, and we arranged to visit Sarah in Indiana. After, it was two weeks later. And we sat down with Sarah and the director of her clinic, and we outlined the, the guidelines for a, a, a um, um, contract between us and their clinic to run our study there, with Sarah as the principal investigator and with us as co-investigators. Uh, and uh, usually when you do it, and we, we planned a 500-person study, we intended to recruit all 500 people in central rural Indiana. Mm. Which is insane. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless you have Dr. Sarah Halberg as your mm -hmm. PI. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, we had uh, the Human Subjects Committee IRB approval within two months, which never mm -hmm. happens. And we uh, uh, started recruiting in, after three months from when I met Sarah Halberg, and we started the first patient on the protocol in four months. Um, 
and over seven months we recruited over almost 100 people with uh, diabetes being treated as in the usual, in the, the standard uh, clinical care clinic there at their referral center by diabetologists. So we had 100 people in the parallel usual care group and then uh, f almost 400 people, most with type 2 diabetes, some with prediabetes. And they were in two groups. One group got an in-person, come to the clinic once a week for the first three months, sit down in a group and, and get the support and the information. And, and uh, the, then we did it every two weeks. And then at the end of the year, we did it for the last six months monthly. And that's not how I know to run this kind of program over the yeah. course of a year. And the rest of them, they basically took Sami and the programmers and the design folks, you know, took our content and stuck it into little snippets that were available to people through an app that they could watch anytime and any place they wanted to. They were in contact with their coach um, on average three times a day for the first wow. three months. Uh, and then it tapered down somewhat after that. Uh, and that includes weekends. The coaches uh, uh, covered, had a, a four-person coverage, so we provide remote continuous care. Uh, and I was pretty convinced that there's no person in-person part of this. It's going to be kind of, you know, little fragments. It won't fit together. And my hypothesis was that our in-person treatment would be a lot better. I was wrong. Yeah. We actually, there was no significant difference between the outcomes of the two groups, but the trend was in favor of the app. Wow. And that was when the app was rudimentary. Um, when, when we initially designed it as a two-year study, but we, we had 84% retention and 83% retention at one year and 74% at two years. We figured we got, you know, these are really committed That's people. That's almost unheard of. They, the they love this, yeah. 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 And so we've now extended it to a five-year study, but the midpoint of between two and five was three and a half, mm -hmm. and we're just now finishing the collection of our three-and-a-half-year data and still have remarkable retention. Wow. So you, you so want to brag status. a little bit about the results so far? Well, at two years, as again, we had very good retention. Um, the, it, it, there's a lot of discussion, if not argument, around what do you call success? Mm. And um, I call it ten toes. And since the American <laughs> since the American Diabetes Association says that type two diabetes is a chronic progressive disease, they really aren't positioned to philosophically to accept the fact that it's a re re reversible condition where mm. people can remain in a non-diabetic -di state for years. Mm. So some people call that remission. Uh, I prefer to call it reversal, mm -hmm. yeah. because remission suggests you've done it, whereas reversal is a process. If you're going down, and this is a terrible pun, dead-end street, mm -hmm. and you put the vehicle in reverse and you're, you're going backwards, you're reversing the disease. But it's a process. And so it's not like you do a treatment for six months or a year, and then go back to eating the standard American diet and be just fine. It, it, that's not going to work. And yeah. it really is an ongoing process. And the other thing we learned is we thought we could get most people to the point where after one year they, were on, they could do this on their own. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people want and need the ongoing support, and they need to have someone there when they hit a speed bump, um, a birthday party, go on a cruise, an illness, mm -hmm. something, and they need the, the support. So it's, we're, we've learned that for many people, this is an ongoing uh, supported lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, much of that now is being done in um, uh, groups of patients um, through a, basically a social media platform that we've con constructed in our app where it's a, a peer support. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take a lot of professional input. Yeah. Uh, but it, and the other point is it's, we've learned that it's, it has to be, and we knew this before, is highly individualized. Mm -hmm. So at two years, our, so I didn't forget the question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at two years, um, uh, 
using sophisticated statistics that they call um, uh, last value carried forward with multiple imputations. The conclusion is that 54% of our patients who had type 2 diabetes no longer qualify for that diagnosis. That's amazing. Now, I'll, I'll probably get fired for saying this, but I'm a grumpy old internist, and I like just cold, stark numbers without a whole lot of fancy. 39% yeah. uh, of the people who actually came back in at the end of two years and got everything tested, 39% of them uh, remain um, uh, without, you know, are free of the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Um, and then the people who, and that means getting their hemoglobin A1C under 6.5 off all diabetes-specific medications. Mm. But the more rigorous is, do you do like Richard did, you get the hemoglobin A1C down under 5.7. Mm -hmm. um, and 19% of our patients are under 5.7 off all diabetes medications. And that's true remission, or we won't say cure, maybe after five years, as you've done. Yeah. So um, the American Diabetes Association recently listed a very low-carb diet as uh, an option for treating type 2 diabetes. Do you think you had anything to do with that? I think Sarah Hallberg had more. Well, you, Verda. If you've seen Sarah Hallberg's TED Talk, where she gets up and in 18 minutes says, you know, you have somebody whose who body don't respond well to insulin, and their blood sugars are too high. So what's the plan? You feed them 60 grams of carbohydrate at every meal, and then give them enough medication to try to make that carbohydrate go into the cell, your glucose go into the cells. That's crazy, she says. Yeah. You just take away the carbohydrate, and they'll get a lot better. But I mean, the point and, is, and, and it, it really upset them a lot. Yeah. But when we published our, our one-year data, um, they basically said, well, maybe we should look at this as an option. And that mm -hmm. was Sarah Hallberg. I mean, okay. I, I, I gave her the bullets, but she's the one who fired the gun wow. on this. <laughs> and mentioned that Jeff Volek and I are joined at the hip. And I wouldn't be here if in 2003, Jeff hadn't come up to me and said, you know, you did some really interesting work a couple decades ago, but it looks to me like you've given up on that. You need to get back in the fight. Join me. Get in, and so I, I'm here because Jeff is. As Join as, me and I will complete your training. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I can't remember which movie that came from. <laughs> and so the other thing that is really neat is, you know, we published our two-year data, uh, uh, and that took a, quite a bit of work. Um, uh, was published in a journal called Frontiers in Endocrinology. So we actually got into an endocrinology yeah. publication, which is neat. We're making inroads against, because this is a profession that we're basically challenging, and Sarah in particular yeah. gets up and challenges them on that. Um, and so th at this year's American Diabetes Association last month, the guy who got up, it, it, it is five days of parallel meetings in multiple different room, rooms going on simultaneously. There's a huge amount of information. And they task one person to kind of summarize the whole meeting in a one-hour presentation at the end of the meeting. And for two of the minutes of that hour, this guy said, oh, by the way, we really need to pay, pay attention to what these people at Verto are doing because although you may not like what they're doing, they're going to change how diabetes is managed. And that was the, the summary in this, and it was like, who, who Tremendously gratifying. And, and who, who, who was that who, who made that comment? Do you, do you recall? Mm, yeah. Um, I don't remember the guy who is not. I don't remember the guy's okay, name. Okay, fair enough. I'm just curious. So, so, uh, so you've got long-term studies, and, and, and diabetes is really the low-hanging fruit here because it's an easy thing to reverse back out of, but you've, got, you've also done studies into cardiovascular biomarkers. 
as well with the same with the same cohort. Mm -hmm. um, and because I mean, you, you had a usual care uh, group, you had a control group, and you had your treatment group, so you were able to infer statistical significance for all of your outcomes. Which is, uh, I, I remember this. I remember the story you told me once uh, about the control group were jumping the fence. Because this was in one town that all of these people were, were, were recruited from. And the people who were on the usual care were seeing what their, their neighbours were doing and saying, oh, I like, a bit, I like that. That, you know, that sounds interesting. So they were jumping. Was that, is, <laughs> how, how many did you lose in the control group? We tried to encourage people not to make that change mm. um, for the first two years. But we, I, we've ended the control group at, after two years. Yeah. Uh, and there's been a lot of crossover since then. Before that, I think we had three people who, because when they were recruited into the study, as part of the consent process, we told them, we had to tell the people who were, we were we trying to recruit for the control group that there was another part of the study with this intervention. Um, uh, but that this was experimental and we had no idea how it would impact diabetes in the long term. Mm -hmm. And so this was an important study to, to be done. Um, and so people had, knew when they signed the consent form to be in the, in the parallel control group. You know, so it was not blinded. No. Uh, it was not randomized. They knew that they were. But, they knew but some people said, oh, I, I want to hear about that other one. So yeah. we may have had a few crossover. But once they joined that group, I think we only had three people. And, you know, when people were recruited into a study and signed a consent form, I'm gratified by the, you know, the fact that people stay with the study. And then yeah. our control group did a, you know, were, were remarkably... Um, um, dutiful in, yes. yeah. in uh, living up to, to their commitment to be mm -hmm. part of the study. But many of them, in, in Indiana, in central Indiana, you know, there's, there's a, a seismic change. And one of the things that happened was Dr. Hallberg practices in Lafayette, Indiana. On the other side of the Wabash River is West Lafayette with Purdue University. And a bunch of our research subjects uh, recruited into the study in the uh, uh, remote, remote continuous care group um, were employees of Purdue, and after the first year or so, some of them were gaining notice because, as you know, you guys notice when you change that much, people, yeah, what are you doing? What yeah. are you doing? And the HR yeah. people came to and said, "What are you? You know, the human resource people, said, you know, what are you doing?" And they said, "Well, I'm doing this thing with Dr. Hallberg, and you ought to consider offering this to your employees." And they, Purdue was the second mm. uh, um, uh, enterprise customer who signed up with us because what we at Verta. Um, market is, is a program for self-insured employers and insurers to offer to their people with type 2 diabetes. And one of the, the things we, we guarantee for them is that the change in the diabetes status will be of a magnitude on average that they will save more money in direct care costs in the first year than our program costs. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we've been able to live up to that. And we meet that goal in over 70% of patients who, who uh, join, the, join our program. Wow. Fantastic. So one of the interesting things about your study is that um, you're not taking people who are recently diagnosed with diabetes. They've had diabetes for over eight years. And, and a lot of the other reversals, uh, and I'm thinking about the direct study, for example, this, these, the people who had the most dramatic reversal of their diabetes were those who'd only been diagnosed very shortly. And so they weren't, they weren't really far down that path. Down, down the dead end, literally. They only had that small reversal. But um, So in your case, I mean, you, you, your control group at two years, they've done their duty, they've, 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 they've 
being your consistent control, um, did you offer them the 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 the, the, the treatment arm? Did, did you know it, it, because because they've only been diabetic for a sh you know you can you uh, you're, you've already shown that uh, your your treatment was able to treat people who've been really quite diabetic for quite some time. Mm. Yeah, the in the, the the direct study which was done in northern UK and Scotland um, and used a short term. Um, very almost very low calorie, mm. somewhat ketogenic diet in a liquid formula. Mm. Uh, the average person, the average duration since diagnosis was two years. Oh, in our right. study, it was uh, uh, 8.3 years. Mm. Uh, and so we take people who have have had a longer history of disease, greater progression, um, and again we use two things: more a more strict carbohydrate restriction, uh, and we start at 30 grams of total carbs per day. And the other thing we tell people is. You know, this is not something you can just do for three months and then you'll be fine. We tell them this is something where you, you're going to make most of your changes in the first three months, but this is then something that you will maintain long term. Mm. Uh, and this tool only works when you're doing it. It doesn't work when you think you're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Is there anything you want to say about uh, Jeff Volek uh, in his studies? I'm, first of all, you're a Connecticutite, and he was a Yukon guy, right? So... Is he from Connecticut too? Uh, Jeff is born uh, in Flint, Michigan. Oh, okay. From a family that had worked in the Ford auto industry for two generations. Yeah, he was a, um, a uh, uh, an athlete in high school and in college, um, and uh, was a state champion powerlifter uh, during right. his education. Um, uh, but uh, you know, he uh, went to did his undergraduate work, work at Michigan State in East Lansing. And then went, did his dietetic internship in Colorado. And somebody noticed a spark in this kid and said, you know, you ought to go to graduate school. You know, you're, you're really interested in sport. So Jeff then went, on, went to Pennsylvania State and, uh, and did his uh, PhD in kinesiology, which is exercise science. Right. Um, and at the time, read some of my papers and started practicing this on himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when he was state champion uh, powerlifter in Indiana uh, for his age category, when he was doing a postdoctoral fellowship at Ball State, he was on a ketogenic diet. And the edge that that gave him was that he, had, as a you know, as a, a scientist and a dietitian and a committed athlete, couldn't burn his body fat content down below 11 percent. That means if he weighed 70, he had to weigh 70 kilos, um, that you know he had about seven kilograms of body fat. And that was seven kilograms of muscle he wouldn't have compared to somebody who was leaner up to, you know, nobody gets to zero body fat. But he was, with a ketogenic diet, he'd be probably able to promptly get himself down, I think, under 7%, mm. which gave him another three kilograms of muscle and still make weight. Um, and then people say, well, but you need glycogen to lift those weights up. Jeff said, nah, not really. You don't, you know, that's strictly ATP. He said, my average competition lasts for half a second. Mm. You don't need to burn glycogen for a half a second. Wow. It's you either got it up or you don't hmm. have it up. And, uh, uh, and see, he's been living this lifestyle since, I think, 1996 or 1997. And I'm a laggard. I came in doing it on my own account in 2004. <laughs> it's not sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, there's, there's His grandson will have to keep doing it, right? To, <laughs> prove, to prove the skeptics? Well, there's a study that he's just published that I know you want to talk to press well, about. I, I call it the cheese study, which is probably a bit unfair, but it was funded by various cheese um, lobby groups. But the, it, the, the interesting thing about this study um, is that uh, they, uh, they put people on three different kinds of diets, a low-carb, a moderate-carb, and a high-carb diet. 
and they, uh, it was eucaloric, so, so um, they, they basically, if these people were losing weight, they made them eat more food, and if they were gaining weight, they'd make them eat less food. So they were making sure that they were, they were not touching body fat, or at least the, the fat cycle, the, the flux was, was static. And, um, and you know, the, 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 they were able to show that they were able to reverse, uh, so, so, so metabolic syndrome is five different symptoms, uh, central adiposity, um, uh, high glucose, high fasting glucose, um, uh, low HDL, and triglycerides and blood pressure. Well, they were taking central adiposity off the table because they weren't allowing these people to lose weight. So they, that was one symptom that they weren't able to say we can re reverse. So they had four left, and they were able to reverse um, as, as long as you have less than three. So they were able to reverse at least two of the symptoms uh, on a low-carbohydrate carbo diet in nine out of the 16 people. Without losing weight. Without losing weight. And so it, it, the, the, the interesting thing, thing well, there's, there's a lot of interesting things about it, but, but I, I find it fascinating that um, the fact that it was a high-cheese diet, it was a high-cheese, low-fat, high-cheese, moderate-carb... Uh, <laughs> sorry, uh, high-low-carbohydrate, high, moderate-carbohydrate, high-carbohydrate, high-cheese diets, that's a slap in the face to other dietary... Um, uh, for example, vegetarians. Yeah. Vegetarians are, must be furious, and but but the standard is now out there for them. They can be. They can if they can if Dean Ornish, for example, can can get better data. He's got to he's got to beat nine out of sixteen because that's mm -hmm. that's the benchmark now. Yep. For, well, the the genesis of this study. I mean, Jeff and I have been wanting to to study diets like this, and you know, frankly, our grants don't get taken. Proposals don't get taken seriously. So now my research at Verda is funded by venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. So I have a bias. I'm, I want them to be happy. Um, but the people who, you know, the cheese manufacturers, and this is a, a, a branch of the U.S. Dairy Council and then a Dutch and, uh, cheese industry source funded this study, which wasn't cheap to do because we recruited 16 people with metabolic syndrome. Um, and then we... Not only did we tell them eat a, we didn't tell them to eat a low carb diet, an intermediate carb, or high carb diet. Jeff and his team cooked all the food for all 16 people, and each one did, for one month, did each of the three diets. So it was a three-way crossover study. That's um, a huge amount of work. And, a lot of cheese. And what the cheese people wanted to be able to, because we had shown previously with people with metabolic syndrome, when we fed them a high-fat diet with a lot of saturated fat in it, that their blood levels of saturated fat didn't go up. In fact, on the ketogenic diet with a high, with a high, relatively high saturated fat intake, the blood levels of saturated fat came down. I mean, it's a paradox because every every dietitian knows and will tell you you are what you eat. And yet, when we're feeding people two and a half times as many as much saturated fat, um, how do the blood saturated fat levels come down? And the cheese people wanted to recreate that in a weight stable, not a weight loss environment, which was our previous study. Uh, and so that's where this came from. And so everybody got, I believe, six ounces of cheese a day mm -hmm. uh, as part of their diets. Uh, and um, can Carrie and I sign up? Because that's like <laughs> that's our thing. And it was good cheese too. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Dutch make some really great cheese, not not just mm -hmm. here in, in the United States. You know, mm -hmm. Wisconsin is good, but yeah. 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 Anyway, so um, what we actually measured were blood levels uh, in in. Uh, two different fractions of lipids in the blood, in the phospholipids and in the, in the triglycerides. Uh, and when you eat fat, most of the fat you eat goes through the blood as triglycerides. Um, and we know from previous epidemiological studies, and again, there are some flaws in epidemiology, but there's some good lessons there. And one mm -hmm. is that if you get blood levels of, of, 
saturated fat on people and then follow them for 10 years, the people who have the highest levels of saturated fat in either their phospholipids or their triglycerides have the greatest risk of developing type 2 diabetes or coronary artery disease. Mm. And so the idea, you know, this, this questioning of the, the, you know, is saturated fat a problem? If it's in your bloodstream, it is, there's clear indications that it, there's a linear relationship between the level of saturated fat and disease risk. Yeah. But the thing that's different with a well-formulated ketogenic diet, again, as we've demonstrated in our research, that without any physical training, just changing your diet, you double your body's capacity to burn fat for fuel. Mm. And when you do that, it appears that saturated fats are selected as the first ones to go into the fire. They're a, they appear to be a preferred fuel. And so the body has a capacity of clearing saturated fats at a remarkable level. We just have to offer them this metabolic island of safety of nutritional ketosis. And in that, on that island of safety, dietary saturated fats are not, clearly not a problem. And so that's reported in this paper. Mm. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, again, generated a, a, a lot of um, discussion, we'll say. And yeah. it's only been out for about three weeks. And the, the, but the reason is that the previous study with people were losing weight, and of course they were losing weight, so court. But here they were being fed yeah. um, a prodigious amount of saturated fat, and with the protection of, of being on the very low carb diet, uh, it clearly it, it provided an island of safety in terms of being able to clear something that, if accumulated, could be harmful. Yeah. But it doesn't when you're doing this diet right. So the, the distinction between triglycerides and phospholipids is triglycerides are lipids going through our body that we're going to use for energy and phospholipids are one we're going to use for structure, for, for building lipoproteins, for building our cell walls. And so it, it, these, are, these, these are going to last for longer. So if, if, if you, is, is that the distinction there between the, between the two? Your education is showing. Ah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. So one is the phospholipids are part of the, the, the membranes that surround all our cells, and they're in blood lipids that allows lipid droplets to float through the, the aqueous solution of the blood and not stick together and form clots and things like that. So your phospholipids are key structural components of the body, whereas triglycerides are basically moving fuel through the, the bloodstream at, uh, to either store it in adipocytes or being taken up by muscle and, and heart and liver and being used for uh, energy generation. Right. Uh, one interesting thing about, uh, I, I did a, a respiratory quotient once, which is a, a test where they measure how, many, how much oxygen you breathe in, how much oxygen you breathe out, how much CO2 you breathe out, and the difference in the oxygen tells you your metabolic rate, and the, uh, diff the, the ratio between CO2 and oxygen uh, uh, tells you what you're burning. And uh, one interesting thing that you were saying about, um, about saturated fats, um, if you're Ratio is one, you're burning glucose. If your ratio is 0.7, you're burning saturated fats. Well, any fat. Any fat, yes, yeah. right. My, so further to the point, my ratio was 0.68, which indicated that not only am I burning fat, I'm burning predominantly long-chain saturated fatty acids because the longer the chain, slightly the ratio changes. Uh, I, d I have done the math <laughs> for that. So. But, but the, the, yeah, the other so. way you make your respiratory quotient, RER, mm -hmm. go below 0.7, is if you're uh, actively making more ketones than you're burning. Ah. So we did a treadmill study on some people where they had been on a, uh, a weight loss ketogenic diet for six weeks, and we put them on the treadmill, and they walked on the treadmill. These are heavy people, so we had them walking uphill on the treadmill, not running. Uh, their mean respiratory uh, quotient, or uh, uh, RER, mm -hmm. was 0.66. 
Wow. But when we looked at their blood ketones, when they got on the treadmill, they were about one and a half. When they got off, they were three. Mm -hmm. And if, a point, if the RER is 0.6, it means they're... Um, uh, there's more oxygen going into the body than is coming out as CO2. Mm. And you have to question, where did the oxygen go? But when you turn long-chain fats into ketones, you add an, uh, uh, oxygens. Uh, and so that explains mm. the, the lower values. Yes. But uh, when we took highly trained ultra-endurance runners and put them on a, on a treadmill and had them basically run, because they were running at race pace for three hours on a treadmill in a study we did, it's called the FASTER study, mm. um, uh, there... Uh, RER indicated that running at race pace, these people were running on 90% as fat for fuel. Wow. That's unheard of because typically you never got, as an athlete, you never get above 60% of your energy as fuel mm. when you're almost out of glycogen and your body is struggling to, to make up the difference. And here these guys started at 90% of fat for fuel and for three hours, just a continuous fuel mix. And the other thing is that as they, again, they started out a, a little under one as a, with their ketones, mm -hmm. and they rose to about almost two at the end of this three-hour run. And what other fuel system do you know of where your body builds the level of the critical fuel while you're exercising? The longer you go, the better the fuel supply. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's unheard of. No, it's, it's how the human body was designed to function. Yeah. And then we came along and started shoving you know, processed carbohydrates into people right. And, right. and shut off that, that uh, that's something that we're all born with. Yeah, which is the way we treat ourselves, right? <laughs> treat myself with some cake. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, we only have a few minutes left, and, and I do want to get a recipe in here, but uh, uh, are you and, like, the fasting people coming to some consensus these days? Uh, I just want to say that um, I'm a student of history, um, and I'm a student, and, I, and part of the history is published data. And the published data on the long, safety of long-term fasting, so let be clear, partial day fasting or intermittent fasting, uh, I have no problem with. Yeah. But when it gets beyond more than two or three days, yeah. um, there are concerns in terms of preservation of, of lean body mass yeah. and uh, providing adequate mineral nutrition, because if you're doing a total fast, yeah. a water fast, your body's still excreting minerals, yeah. but you're not taking them in. And if people are living on a margin, particularly around essential minerals, I won't get into sodium, but potassium and magnesium are, are um, minerals that we have to deal with actively in many of our patients. Mm -hmm. And if, if part of the time they're not getting it in, that means we got to do even better on the days when they are taking in nutrient-dense foods. So what uh, about fasting so, with electrolytes then? Um, but, then, but then there's still the, the, the loss of lean body mass yeah. that, you know, people deny that it's, it's important or they uh, call it autophagy. Right, right. Um, and there is animal data and some human data that says that's important. But I have not seen any data that says that if you're follow, consistently following a ketogenic diet and then you add a fast that you get benefits from, uh, from this process that people call autophagy. Okay. Because we know that ketones are a clean burning fuel and they preserve mitochondrial function far better than if you're not in nutritional ketosis. Yeah. And that's really what you're trying to achieve with autophagy. And you may have already gotten there. So adding it in, I'm not convinced, is, is beneficial. So I want to see published data in peer-reviewed journals. Yeah. I mean, we've made that commitment. And I'm not throwing out a challenge. I'm just saying, if you're evaluating for yourself you know, what is proven beneficial, mm -hmm. uh, I would you know, look at, at what's... Uh, 
uh, published in the peer-reviewed literature, realizing that it is very hard to get countervailing data like ours and theirs published, but mm. we have to do that. It's very hard to get fasting studies published through an IRB, so mm. that, that, that's, it, it, it's almost impossible to get a, a starvation study, for example. We couldn't repeat, we couldn't, probably couldn't repeat um, the starvation studies, George Cahill's okay, yeah. starvation studies now, I don't think, because of that. Uh, we couldn't, probably couldn't even do it with animals, I guess, so... I, I think that it, it, I, I would say that that's probably um, not would not be the case for durations of one to two weeks. Okay. And uh, Bruce Bistrian published a paper in 1977 uh, where he had people on a, a weight loss ketogenic diet and for two weeks, three weeks, and looked at how their bodies responded in terms of giving them adequate protein. And even in the first week of a a protein supplemented uh, modified fast, mm -hmm. uh, which is under 800 calories a day, but enough protein. For the first week, they were losing lean tissue, even though they were eating the protein and the minerals. The second week, they were coming almost up to zero, and by the end of the third week, they were up to zero. They were then, they, they, even though they were eating under 1,000 calories a day, they were preserving lean body mass, and that was radical data back in mm -hmm. the late 1970s. But then he, they were already three weeks into the adaptation process, and then he had them do a one-week fast. Now, this is done in a metabolic research ward under observation. Sure. And they immediately dropped down to losing um, you know, something in the range of, of a third to half a pound of, of lean tissue per day. And then in that week, we're showing they were beginning to readapt to that. Uh, but there's, I don't know of any evidence that um, says that, uh, that in terms of lean body mass preservation, that any form of fasting beyond a couple days is benign in terms right. of, of that so process. So is this... Is, is this subject to the adiposity of the of the subject so i mean that uh, body fat can get, deliver so much energy per day and we're talking about energy insufficiency during a fast some people have enough energy on their body that they're not going to be energy in a, insufficient in a fast you would hope that's true okay and it, wor I, I and, hope it's true. And it works yeah. in hibernating bears ah. right. there are people have actually done studies and bears actually don't hibernate they sleep in their dens mm. But people have climbed in with the, 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 in the dens of wild bears who are sleeping and drawed blood samples from them and, and then hustled their butts out of there really quickly. Um, wow. and, but they've looked at the ability, and bears can preserve lean tissue mm. by running just on fat. We humans cannot do that. Right. Uh, and fat mass does not protect us mm. um, from protein catabolism. We can reduce it down to, after a month of total starvation, to losing just a quarter pound of lean tissue a day. Mm. But we're still losing that. Uh, and so, uh, again, it, it's, this is not completely theoretical because the other risk of, of prolonged fasting is that depending on how you end your fast, there is a potential of having acute shifts of, of fluid and minerals into cells, right. which can lead to abnormal heart rhythms and sudden death. And that was mm -hmm. uh, reported in multiple situations during World War II when people were uh, uh, subjected to prolonged privation in lifeboats or in concentration camps or something. And you ki we killed people with kindness by giving them lots of food. Mm -hmm. You have to introduce the food slowly. And just telling someone, well, don't, don't binge when you come off this is, I think, not adequate in terms of safety. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. We only have a couple minutes left. So a big round of applause for Professor Stephen Finney. And of course, we like to end every show with a recipe. All right, Carrie. I do have a recipe. It's your turn. And I'm actually going to share the rest, one of the recipes that I 
demoed today for the purposes of the people who couldn't be here with us. Right. Um, I'm going to share the recipe for the cappuccino mousse, which yes. failed, but I'm going to give you the recipe that works. <laughs> so here's what you're going to need. You're going to need a quarter of a cup or two fluid ounces of cold water. You're going to need uh, one and a half teaspoons of gelatin. Then you're going to need a separate quarter of a cup, two fluid ounces of hot water, one tablespoon of espresso powder, a quarter of a cup plus two tablespoons of erythritol or equivalent sweetener. And I'll come back to that because if you follow me, you know that I weigh everything and here I am not weighing anything. Mm. So I'll explain that. You're going to need a quarter of a teaspoon of sea salt, four ounces or 110 grams of cream cheese, which I highly recommend you leave out the night before so it's nice and soft, and one cup of all that gloriously saturated fatty heavy cream. Mm -hmm. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to pour the cold water in a small dish and you're gently going to sprinkle the gelatin powder evenly over the surface and you're going to leave it to stand for five minutes so that the gelatin softens. And that technical term for that is blooming. So you're going to bloom your gelatin. In the meantime, you're going to put the hot water into a small pan, add the espresso powder, the sweetener, the sea salt, and you're going to stir it well over a low heat until it's completely dissolved. And then you're going to turn the heat off. You're going to add the soaked gelatin to the mixture in the pan, and you're going to stir well until it's completely dissolved. And when it's completely dissolved, it'll obviously be completely clear liquid, then you're going to leave it to cool. The next step is you're going to put the softened cream cheese in a large bowl and you're going to beat it well. I recommend you use a hand mixer or you can also do it in a stand mixer if you don't have a hand mixer. And you're going to beat it until it's very soft and then you're gradually going to add, pour the cooled coffee mixture to the cream cheese a little at a time and beat well between each addition until you've incorporated all the coffee mixture and cream cheese together. In a separate bowl, and this is where mine went wrong. In a separate bowl, you're going to whip the heavy cream until you have stiff peaks, but you're going to stop before it turns into butter, because for once, we don't want butter. <laughs> um, once you've got your whipped cream, you're going to gently fold the whipped cream into the coffee mixture, and you're going to do it lightly and carefully because if you're too heavy-handed, you're going to knock all the air out of the cream that you've just whipped in and you're gonna, your, your mousse is gonna be less light and fluffy. And so when you've incorporated the cream and the, the coffee cheese mixture together, you're gonna spoon the mousse into dishes or either one large dish or into individual dishes and you're going to cover them and put them in the fridge for at least four hours. And after four hours, you're going to have a delightful light and fluffy coffee mousse. Uh, so what went wrong today was it was too hot yep. and the cream split or curdled. It looked like it was curdled. So it was a good learning experience because I showed everybody how to magically make it unsplit. So what I did was I poured the split mousse into a pan and I put it over a very, very gentle heat and I just warmed it and then the curdle magically disappears. And the science behind that is that when something splits or curdles, what's happening is the fat 
and the water molecules are fighting, so they're separating. So all the fat is clumpy over here and all the water's floating around here and that's why you get that curdled appearance. So when you warm it, you melt the fat so it's no longer clumped together and it will magically become a smooth emulsion again. So that's how we fixed it. The only difference is that the, the, the mousse will taste the same, but it'll be a bit more dense because, of course, when we, when we reheated the mousse, there was no more air left in the whipped cream because we just melted it and made it liquid again. Right. So, but I don't want people to think that if that happens to them and it goes wrong, that they have to throw it away or start again. You can simply warm it up. Your mousse will be a bit denser, but it'll still taste fabulous. So, and I just, the, the why didn't I weigh the sweetener? Because I weigh everything, because dry ingredients should be weighed if you want consistent, accurate results. So here's why I didn't. Um, because I said a quarter of a cup plus two tablespoons of erythritol. In this particular recipe, the sweetener is there simply to sweeten. So you can add a little more or add a little less depending on taste. In most ice cream, great example, baked goods, the sugar has a much greater function than just sweetening. And it's science. And so you have to have the right ratio of ingredients for things to rise properly or roll properly or whatever. It does more than just sweeten. In this case, because it doesn't do anything other than sweeten, you don't have to be so accurate on the measurements. And therefore, if you want to use a quarter of a cup and two tablespoons instead of a weight, have at it. That might be the only time I ever say that out loud. <laughs> Carrie Brown. And we've come to the end of another great Two Keto Dudes show, Three Keto Dudes show, and I'd like to uh, once again thank Professor Finney. And our old friend Richard Morris. Of course, if you have anything you want to tell us, something we said wrong, something that you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything we've said, send it by email to dudes at twoketodudes.com. And you can follow us on Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Two Keto Dudes. Make sure you use the hashtag Two Keto Dudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, go to forum.twoketo.com and you can have a look around there without having to create an account by starting with success.twoketo.com. Also, check out our Facebook group, The Keto Kitchen, which is all about food and cooking, if Facebook is your thing. And if you feel like supporting our forums and all the podcasts that we produce, please consider making a monthly pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Everyone that pledges $20 or more per month will have access to an exclusive Facebook group, Two Keto Dudes Gold. We also have a free Facebook fan page at fb.2keto.com, so go follow us there. And you can see our podcasts and other videos, such as Keto Fest videos, on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. Also, we have an Amazon affiliate store, so you can buy your favorite keto ingredients devices. Go to amazon.2keto.com, and at the same time, you can help us out. And if you haven't already, please take a minute and go leave a review on Apple Podcasts, because that's how new people get to know what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Now everybody repeat after me. Keep calm and keto on. Keep calm and keto on. All right, we'll see you next time on Two, Two keto, keto Dudes. dudes.